0: before i make my first cast the first thing i do is stand out below the lip of that pool and look and see if i see any rising fish you know that little dimple where they're sucking them under if i don't see a rising trout i'll look real carefully at the feeding stations and see if i can see them. and then if i see him then it's one-on-one see there's six possible feeding stations in a pool
1: That was Harry Murray breaking it all down, step-by-step, just how we like it. Another huge episode today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thank you for stopping by the show. Find out what's new right now in our Facebook group, head over to wetflyswing.com slash Facebook, and you can ask a question or connect with other folks in the community. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back. Don't miss this year's 2022 F3T as it returns to theaters near you for another season on the water. Full of rod bending action, unforgettable storytelling, swag, and much more tons of stuff this year. You got to check it out. Head over to wetflyswing.com/f3t to find a show near you. That's wetflyswing.com/f3t. This show is also presented by Deddy Flies. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the country, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com deddy to grab your flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash D-E-T-T-E, to support this podcast in the oldest fly shop in the country. Harry Murray, smallmouth bass and Virginia fly fishing super guru is here to take us to the Shenandoah for some brook trout fishing. Harry shares his four secret casts today, his rules for poisonous snakes, and uh, we dig into the Trout School. He's got this killer Trout School, which is something that if you can get a chance to check it out, you should stop by and and connect with Harry on this. I had a hard time deciding on the exact topic for this one, so I hope you enjoy where we take it, and, and definitely check back with me after you get done and let me know what you thought. Without further ado, here is Harry Murray.
0: How's it going, Harry? Doing fine, Dave. I think we ought to take off from all this hard work and go fishing. Exactly,
1: yeah. If you had to uh, go fishing uh, today or this weekend, where would you be headed?
0: I'd probably try the smallmouth a little bit on the North Fork of the Shenandoah. The, the brook trout are spawning, so we don't like to bother them they're spawning. So I'd probably hit the smallmouth a little bit, even though it's worth the tail end of the season because of the water temperature. Oh, okay. And, and yeah, today we're going to probably touch on
1: a few of uh, a few different things because you've got some uh, pretty good experience. Your name's out there on the smallmouth and uh, you got some pretty good trout fishing Um But let's talk about that. So so we're right now, we're, let's see, I guess we're kind of mid-January, just to give people a perspective of of timing. Um, And uh, before we jump into all that on the bass and the trout, let's just take us back to to fly fishing, how you first got into it.
0: Well, I started fly fishing when I was working in a little furniture shop here in Edinburgh and all the boys that worked in that little shop. Fish. There were only a half a dozen of us, but we—that uh, was primarily jump in the boat and go fish for smallmouth bass and sunfish and that type thing. But they did. Some of them did use fly rods, so that's how I got into that. Then, oh, by the time I was uh, dating a girl here in town whose father did some fly fishing for trout in the mountain streams, I suppose I was about 15 then, I used to tag along with him, and I learned the mountain brook trout fishing from him when I was about 15 years old. There you go. And so now...
1: Basically, now you, you have a fly shop that's uh, definitely well-known out there. I think uh, you opened that in the early 60s?
0: Yeah, I graduated from college and pharmacy school in 62, and I bought the pharmacy here in Edinburgh at that time. And I, at the same time of opening my pharmacy, I opened my uh, fly shop, and I started tying flies and selling tackle and that type thing because there wasn't anything like that in this part of Virginia. Oh
1: no, kidding! So, what made you uh, in you know starting a career like two careers? Wh- why did you why did you feel like you had to do both at the same time?
0: Well, I had to do the pharmacy because I had to pay the bills. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wanted to do the fly fishing because I enjoyed that so much, and a lot of the fly boys that were doing some fly fishing here were asking me to tie flies for them. So. I got into the fly tying pretty quickly after I got out of college, and then that sort of got me into the tackle, the rods, and the reels. I became good friends. A couple of the boys in the tackle industry, Harry Wilson, that owned the, the Scott Rod Company, became a real good mm. friend, and and the boy that owned the Weston Company, Tom Morgan, became a real good friend. So one thing led to another. So before I knew it, we were probably deeper into the fly fishing industry end of the world, and we were into the pharmacy end. There you go. And then up uh, five years ago, I retired the pharmacy department and switched everything over to the fly shop. Gotcha. So we do that, and we do probably 40 or 50 schools a year, and I've written 17 books on both bass, and, uh, smallmouth bass, and, uh, and trout, so it all goes together. And then I do schools here in the fly shop. Uh, Every Saturday during the winter when they can't go fishing, we do schools in here. I'm setting up right now to do a smallmouth school tomorrow. Oh, wow. So we, we have something going on all the time. When people come in to your shop, and I want to talk a little more
1: about what your shop, the difference of when you open it versus now, but uh, but what do people, so when they come in, they just say, hey, I'm kind of new to the area, I'm just swinging by, uh, where should I fish? I guess it depends on the time of year, but typically, are you saying trout or, or smallmouth bass, or is it kind of equal?
0: Well, for trout, we always think about spring. The trout fishing for the wild brook trout starts in the mountain streams in Virginia, Shenandoah National Park and others starts in mid-March and then it goes on through the summer as long as the water level holds up well. Smallmouth fishing for us starts in the middle of May and goes on into October. So the time of the year would sort of dictate what I'd be sending them into. And, of course, I wrote the book Trout Fishing in the Shenandoah National Park yep. that lists all of the streams in the park and how to find them and, and all that type thing. And then I wrote a book, Virginia's Blue Ribbon Streams, that puts all of our bass streams and a lot of our trout streams in there. And the bass streams, it... Uh, we show all the, not all, but certainly most of the access places on the James, New, Clinch, Rappahannock, all those rivers. We were showing them where the public access sites are so they can go on their own if I'm not right there with them.
1: Oh, gotcha. Okay. No, this is great. I mean, I, obviously you, your name's out there and you've you've done a ton of work over the last, uh, God, what has it been? Are we looking at uh, 50 years, right? 50 years, Yes. Amazing. I mean, what's that been like? Before we dig into the tips on some of the stuff you do, what's it been like having a fly shop for 50
0: years? I've enjoyed every moment of it because we've always got something going on from really the beginner, beginner level all the way up to somebody that's been fly fishing all their lives because the the brook trout fishing we have here in the mountain streams in virginia is is really outstanding and it's attracted some very serious fishermen now some of these will be using uh, a very good bamboo rod and some of them will be using a relatively inexpensive glass rod but they're very serious about their mountain brook trout fishing because it's the real thing and once they master the these mountain streams, they can fish anywhere in the world. I've got friends that have started in our schools in the Shenandoah National Park that are now fishing all around the world, Argentina, New Zealand, Alaska. So the once we get them uh, introduced into the serious fishing for the wild trout, they can easily grow from that into whatever type of fishing they want to do.
1: Gotcha. No, I think this is... Uh... You know, even it started here, Harry, Harry, I think this is going to have to be like a two-part uh, uh, podcast And I know you have a podcast too, which I'm super excited about to talk a little bit about because you do, a, you do a weekly or a monthly podcast, right?
0: Yes, we do a podcast every week. What I do in that is sort of trying to make it timely for the boys. I'm showing them what's going on as we speak and then what I anticipate for the next month. So that way, the guy that's coming out of Northern Virginia and he only has a quickie weekend, you know, I can get him at the right place at the right time and take advantage of the situation that we have.
1: Yeah, that's great. Now, I've listened to a number of those and you do a good job of their quick little, you know, five, 10 minute snippets. They give you a good tip, you know, or two to get you going.
0: And of course, we send out a newsletter, rather extensive newsletter once a month. Oh, okay. and okay. that's showing the flies and what's what's hatching and what flies we're using what artificial flies we're using to match that particular hatch. Art Flick helped me a tremendous amount when I started identifying the aquatic insects here in Virginia. I used to send him up to Art Westkill, and, uh, you know, he'd say, well, I'm pretty sure this is a, well, in the old days, we called them Quill Gordons. He'll say, well, I'm pretty sure this is a Quill Gordon or this is a March Brown, and then, then I worked up hatch charts, and I published all these hatch charts in, in, in several of my books. So that, that helps them a whole lot, and then then the boys know what to bring along to go fishing or what to tie up to go fishing. So, But Art was a tremendous help in all of that No, yeah, that's awesome
1: yeah we've talked a little bit about art uh, in fact we had the art flick trout unlimited we did a little episode on what they have going so we've got a few uh, cool things i guess um but yeah i think you know i think it'd be good to cover a little bit of the uh the focus a little bit on trout although i mean bass would be amazing as well i think we should start with trout and then uh, and see where that takes us because this brook trout sounds pretty interesting. What, what do you think? Would you you mentioned it starts in
0: the spring? Let's just take us there. So, well, the hatches start coming off the Epispluralis, which was the old name for the uh, the quill gordon, and that's the one one of the flies I developed the Mister Rapidan for. And then then we we start with that in the middle of March, and that that's followed pretty quickly in the latter part of March about the, with the blue quill, and then by Oh, by early April, we're into the March brown and the gray fox, and then the light Cahill. And then by the uh, by the middle of May, we're into uh, the sulfur, the ephemera Dorothea, and we have our large sulfur hatch almost every stream in the in the Chandelier National Park would have a good sulfur hatch, especially those with a southern exposure. And uh, I mean, you, you can go, my son and I were camped over in one of the streams in the park when he was right small and I was putting the tent up for the night and he grabbed one of the rods and headed upstream and came running back down and says, Dad, you've got to see this. So he, I grabbed, took my fly rod, and we headed upstream, maybe a couple hundred feet, and here was a long, narrow pool, and the, and the Dolph, the Dorothy of the Sulphurs were on. The, the duns were coming up and the spinners were coming back. And in that at one pool, as we stood there and watched them, there were 11 brook trout on feeding stations working on those sulfurs. So we're very lucky here in Virginia to have these rich streams that we do have in the park. And they're very well managed. Our park officials are just really first class, very conscientious. boy In fact, I've taught three of the fisheries biologists to fish. I I teach all this in one of the local colleges or did I did an advanced school and and did beginner schools and all that in fact that's how the Mr. Rapidan came about Uh, I had two boys in one of my advanced classes that were getting up in years and they said Harry when we're on these mountain brook trout streams we have trouble seeing the fly so he's teach us how to tie a fly that will First, let us see the crazy thing on the water that will float like a cork and then also will match our major hatches in the spring. Well, that was the beginning of the rapidan, and that's still the Mr. Rapidan dry fly. So they do well with that, and it does it matches the uh, epispluralis, and it matches the March Brown both very, very well. So I've really enjoyed doing that and, and seeing the class enjoy it. This one class, uh, I think I taught the advanced class there at Lord Fairfax College for about 15 years, and one of the boys comes in carrying his toolbox and all with him. And start setting it up. he said, Harry, you know, this is the 14th year I've taken your advanced class. Yeah. I said, Bill, either I'm a lousy teacher or you're a lousy student. <laughs> but we have a good time with it. That's awesome. Well, they say, uh, I can't remember
1: what the number is, but I think when people take courses or whatever, they only remember about like 10 or 20% of it each time. You know what I mean? So you have to take it 10 times, at least 10 times. You know, that's a minimum of to have it all sink in, to become an expert.
0: Uh, I think you're right. But my advanced class there in Lord Fairfax College became more of a club than it was a class because Uh everybody kept coming back and taking it over and over and over again. The one boy who really took very accurate notes, you know, I'd hand out sheets of what we were going to tie and the components and all this, that, and the other. And I'd handed these out and I said, Now, this is what we're going to tie -tie tonight. And I brought the extra material if you need it. And one boy, I saw him back in the back, kind of flipping through his notes, and he says, Harry, you know, we tied that, that fly 13 years ago. <laughs> that, that's all right, Bill. We're going to tie it again tonight. <laughs> there you go. But so it sort of becomes a club.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's something, you know, obviously, uh, if it works right, you don't need to tweak the fly if it's working. Where, where do you get your flies or where could somebody, if they wanted to see a bunch of your brook trout or just trout flies in general, did you, do you have a book out there that covers a lot of these?
0: Well, they'd be on our website. We have their whole catalog on our website. And they'd be, uh, a lot of the flies would be in that book I've written, uh, Virginia's Blue Rim Streams, uh, that'll show a lot of the flies. But they're all with the flies. I think if we stuck probably, oh, probably, well, we we know we've got about 30,000 flies in stock. And I think we've probably got 60 or 120. Uh, in our website, so they can see them on our website at murrayflyshop.com. Perfect. But if they have any questions about any of them, they can always just ring me or shoot me an email, and I'll be glad to discuss it with them. But uh, a lot of these are flies. I've designed probably 30 or 40 different flies, and I'm really trying to do the old match the hatch and then flies that are particularly appropriate in this area. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'll be glad to help them if they have any questions on any of that.
1: Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, let's, I want to dig a little more into, uh, you know, some of the brook trout fishing, uh, but you mentioned on your kids, or you mentioned you, you got some kids that tell me about that. How, how old are the kids and are they working in the fly shop as well?
0: Uh Well, I have four guides that work for me doing guides. I only have one. I've got a fly shop manager that's here all the time. And then I have four guides that help me with my schools and the guide trips okay. and all that. We do probably on the trout schools, we're probably doing... 30 a year and then every Saturday during the winter I do something in here basically uh, just a little seminar with me setting up the projector and doing a little lecture but to help me on the uh, the trout end of that the guides know the park real well now when I the park asked the park officials asked me to write that book trout fishing in the shadow national park and I covered every stream in the park and showing the location where to park the car, which trails to take, and that type thing to get down in there. Oh, wow. Because you can easily get lost in the Shenandoah National Park. It's 100 miles long and roughly 30 miles wide. And there are 21 different streams that are accessible off of the Skyline Drive. And even with 21, many of those will have, say, four or five fishable branches so there, there's more fishing there than you and I could cover in a year. So the guides help a whole lot. And we do the schools, many of the schools are actually done in the Shenandoah National Park. And, of course, then I do schools for the Shenandoah National Park. The that's sort of an unusual situation, they have some classes for inner-city kids, usually high school age. And they bring them out here, and, you know, they'll have somebody that, that'll that teach them about the trees and the the vegetation and the flowers, and then I teach them about the fishing and all that. And then while they're out here, to make them feel like they're part of them, they'll have those kids cleaning up the trails and that type thing. So the Shadowland the National Park is very active. See, we're only an hour from, from the Northern Virginia area, so zip, they're here, right here. But that doesn't crowd the stream, so that, that's what I say on yeah. with the book I've written. I start at the northern end, milepost one, and go to every mile post all the way down. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, you could have lots of people fishing in the park, and you pull into one of those parking places I'm referring to in the book, and there's no car there. you know you've got that whole stream to yourself. There you go. Now, if there are there three cars there, you just keep on going down to the next trailhead. So there, there's there's plenty of room in there for fishing, even though it it is only an hour's drive from Northern Virginia. There you go. There, no, this is great. I think this is awesome. So
1: we'll put that book and, and some a few of others in in the show notes so people can check that out. I I think the Trout School is pretty interesting because uh, doing thirty schools a year sounds like a lot. Is it
0: easy for you to do? Well, when I started all the schools a long time ago, I had different chapters of Trout Unlimited would say, well, I know you did a school for the North," and that was one of my job with forming chapters. We know we did, you did a school for the Northern Virginia chapter, will you do one for this chapter, will you do one? Well, first thing I knew, I had schools going on every week. And it just grew and grew and grew. And of course, I hold the class down to a size group I can manage. I don't take more than ten in any class, okay. and I usually take one of my guides with it. So it's it's one of us and five of them to each five. So we we teach them the real thing and and teach them how to read the water, teach them about the hatches, and uh... and teach them casting if they need to, to do that. So it it really gets them off on the right track.
1: Yeah. The trout school, is it set up mainly for uh, kind of a a beginner to the kind of brook trout fishing?
0: No, actually, we do some. We have our basic school that we refer to as our trout school in the Shenandoah National Park. And then we do have some weekends set off for advance. But since we're doing a one-on-one, right this minute, I might be picking up a kid. um, Well, not a kid, 30-year-old kid. That has never even cast, so I've got to teach him to cast. So then I finish with him, and I move on to the next boy on up the stream, and he's been fishing for thirty years. So I need to show him how to do a slack line cast and all, right. and all that type thing. So it's it's one on one, so I can take them at any any stage, and I do. We go. will have people that are that have never even seen a fly rod in the same mm-hmm. class. With that boy that's been fishing for 30 years and he's heard me refer to a puddle cast and he wants to find out how to throw a puddle cast. So by gearing it one-on-one to that particular student, it pretty well covers the whole need.
1: You cover the people. Okay, so so if you get somebody there that's got some experience as a good uh, angler, uh, but maybe he's new to the area, you could take them and they could uh, go through your class and learn quite a few things.
0: Oh yeah. We've just adapted to the individual.
1: Gotcha. Perfect. No, this is really cool. This is a great resource. So, uh, let, let's talk about that puddle class. I had a couple of these questions for you, the puddle cast. So, so tell us about a puddle cast. What is that? And how do you, how do you do it?
0: Well, that's Vince Marinero. Vince was one of my heroes. Of course he, oh, wow. he and Charlie did the, uh, kind of, were the chief engineers on the Latour, but Vince became a very, very good friend. And, uh, his puddle cast, you and I are standing there on the stream and we see that brook trout out there feeding 15 feet away and he's got crazy currents on this side and on that side and between us and him. Well, if you make a regular forward presentation and drop it out there, you know very well you're going to have drag before he's ready to take it. So with Vince's puddle cast, I'm sitting here at my desk, and I'm making the cast right now. You do not turn it all over all the way. You come up to about a 45-degree angle, and whoa, you stop right there. Well, by stopping at a 45-degree angle up over the water, you can imagine that line and leader falls in just what Vince called it, a puddle. And Uh it just looks terrible. If you had a beginner watching, you'd think, heavens above, what's Harry doing? Well, by letting that slack line fall on the stream between me and the trout that I want to get, more than likely, if I can get a two- or three-foot drift, I've gotten a fish. And in most cases, once you know how to throw a puddle cast, you can easily get a two- or three- or even a four-foot drift. And before all that slack mess washes out, you've got your fish. So there are a lot of refinements that I use. I've got special casts and special striking techniques and all, all that kind of thing that that really impress even the beginner.
1: Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is presented by Stonefly Nets. Stonefly Nets starts the design process by selecting wood for the handle based on a number of key factors, including grain pattern and depth. This is definitely a super amazing piece of artwork you gotta check out. Uh, We are in the process of doing some cool stuff, including a giveaway. If you haven't seen this, check us out on social media where we're following the custom build out process of Ethan. To check out what he has going, we're gonna give away that net when we finish up. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway and check that out right now and, and uh, enter to win that. You can also follow the uh, process there. For Ethan, the founder of Stonefly Nets, uh, fly fishing has always been a traditional feel, connecting back to this first bamboo rod from his grandmother. Uh, he remembers that as he builds every net and knows that you should be thinking the same thing when you touch the Stonefly net. If you can, please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to check out what Ethan has going right now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly. Check it out right now. You support this podcast and Stonefly nets by clicking through that link. Okay, back to the show. let's go back to your trout class. Somebody was in your trout. Let's just say I'm there. So I come up and it's mid-March, maybe late March, and I'm uh, taking a trip out east and and, uh, and I take your class. When I walk in there, uh, take us there. What, what's that look like? If I'm coming into your class, is this all set up first in the shop and then you move out to the river?
0: Well, we have, uh, we mate at a lodge over right adjacent to the Shenandoah National Park. It's in the central area. And then because we decide which stream we're going to fish based on the water level and the hatches and all that type thing. So what we do is sit them down and teach them to read the water with a slideshow. I mean, reading the what's 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 reading the water mean? Well, it's sort of a three-step thing. They're going to sit there in that slideshow, and they're going to see a pool sitting up. Reading the water, page one says, "Where do I think that trout's going to be?" Page two is going to say, "Well, if I'm right, and I think that trout's holding out there beside that boulder." Where am I going to put my fly? And only then do you know where to locate yourself. So, where's the trout? Where do I drop my fly? Where do I put myself? Once you master that, I mean, you're on the way to fish the Yellowstone, the Madison, or anything in the world. Yeah. Because that's the real McCoy. Once you master that basic understanding the water and the currents, you got it made. And that's why I say, well, I've just got hundreds and hundreds of people that are started have started in my mountain trout schools that are now fishing successfully all around the world
1: there you go and, and how do you keep from because i can imagine if you see what looks like a good spot you you kind of have an idea what fly you're going to use but then how do you know how close you you know i think of like the um the euro nymphing right where you're trying to get within 15 20 feet how do you know that you're not going to spook the fish give a
0: tip there well that's a very good question uh Dave, you've got certainly experience will fall, fall into that. If you get too close to him, you're going to spook him, and away he goes, and that's him. Then you better yep. go fish someplace else and come back an hour later if that happened to be a good one. But you really have to judge part of that on experience. You want to get close enough that you can get an accurate Delicate and chaos That's that, that's when I design rods. That's what I'm shooting for. The Murray Mountain Trout Rod. Hmm. Accuracy and delicacy. And once we can achieve that then we're guessing as to where that fish is now we i encourage wearing a dark brim polarized glasses to try to spot them mm-hmm. before i make my first cast the first thing i do is stand out below the lip of that pool and look and see if i see any rising fish you know that little dimple where they're sucking them mm-hmm. under if i don't see a rising trout I'll look real carefully at the feeding stations and see if I can see him and then if I see him then it's one-on-one. See there are six possible feeding stations in a pool. Now not every pool is going to have, but when I'm, or you and I are walking in from the riffle below, we're standing below the pool in front of us that we plan to fish. There are two possible primary feeding stations. The That's the one that's going to hold the biggest fish in the pool. This early, we'll say mid mid April, when the flies are on and everything's going well, the biggest fish in that pool is going to be on what I call the lip of the pool. That is the last place downstream in that pool. That that guy can hold He's probably snuggled up Beside a boulder The size of your steering wheel <laughs> And yep. so he's snuggled up there That current is blocking That current's being blocked By the boulder there beside him And all of the food That's hatching in that stream Is going to drift right to him So gobble, gobble, gobble He's got it Now, suppose we, it rained like crazy For the last week And all of a sudden We've got more water than we want Then that trip instead of being on the lip of the pool, is going to be in what I call the corner of the pool, which is a lazy Susan, the size of a dinner plate, on the side of the pool, right beside where the incoming current is. And it is a really reverse flow. It's a, it's, it's a lazy Susan. And the biggest fish in the pool, he went, the water's fairly high. He's going to sit right there and suck them in all day long. He will not leave that primary feeding station. And, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll teach him how to see him over there and say, now there should be one over in that corner. Let's watch just a minute. And all of a sudden, he's coming up and, you know, with a accurate, gentle cast, zap, they've got him so that 's why I say, if you start out and out, and the hatchery fish don 't do anything yeah. they don 't even know where the water is. <laughs> uh, but when you start with wild brook trout in the mountains which we have throughout the Shenandoah National Park and in the George Washington National Forest we've got the wild brook trout they've been here for thousands of years and they've learned how to play the game and then if we learn to play their game then we're in the right ballpark but it's really a quite a teaching experience
1: yeah that's amazing no i think this and remind me again the so if we're looking upstream you're in the riffle below you're looking up at the pool what the lip is that the Mm -hmm. very where's the lip of the pool
0: the lip is right in front of where we're standing now. If we get too close, we just spook that fish. But the lip is the last place downstream that he could possibly be. Now the tail of the pool is sort of the flat water above that. Oh, Not gotcha. a real good feeding station because. Of it. All right, then above that, and all this is in my books and all that stuff, pictures of all. the next the next thing upstream is mid-pool. Yeah. Well, the mid-pool isn't going to hold the big fish. It's going to hold the dinks. Yeah. Then over to the side, you've got a back eddy over there that's half as big as my Jeep Cherokee. Hmm. Now, he'll, they, they'll move over in there if the water gets high, but normally a back eddy just isn't going to hold the biggest fish. Then we've got that corner against the top, and then we got an incoming riffle. Now, he's not going to hold in the riffle itself, but he'll hold right where the fast water meets the slow water on the side of that incoming riffle,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: where the fast water meets the slow water on the side, because that's where the, for instance, that Epris floralis, the first hatch we have, those are hatching over in there like crazy, drifting down the side, and the trout's just going to hold there and sip, sip, sip. But that is not as good as the lip or the, the corner because it comes back to that thing. He wants the maximum amount of food with the least amount of effort. That's right. He's lazy, you might say. He, he wants to get all the food he can get, but he didn't want to swim himself to death to try to capture it. So they choose these primary feeding stations. And, you know, I can teach the students in my class those in just a matter of minutes. I mean, literally five minutes in the pool, and they've got a pretty good understanding of these feeding stations. But it's a lot of fun, and then they take this to a bigger stream, to the beaver or to the willowy mock, or or out into the Rockies. I've seen a friend of mine right here that had done a little guiding for me. He'll go out in the the wading out into the middle of the Madison River, which is, as a friend of mine says, a 50-mile-long riffle. And Glenn will get out in the middle of that thing, and the water will be rolling by him. And there's one great big boulder out there the size of a living room chair and Glenn will start drifting a nymph or drifting a dry right beside that boulder, just like he did if he was on a 10-foot-wide mountain stream. So one he mastered it in Virginia, and he just took it to the Madison.
1: There you go. So basically the what you teach can be applied not only for brook trout but other species as well?
0: Absolutely. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, I fish Montana a whole lot. Oh, yeah, we, we go out every year. And, uh, you know, the... Um, euro system is just wonderful. Well, obviously there are a friend some friends of mine just were out on the Madison this year and had fantastic with it in some of the bigger streams in Pennsylvania it's pretty straightforward and the euro system is just outstanding. Well, I'm going to teach that this year because people are asking about it in a mountain stream And I'm going to be teaching exactly the same thing, but since the streams are smaller, I'm going to teach them how to adjust their techniques to that smaller stream. But the real thing they're going to be doing is exactly what all these videos and everything we're seeing on Euronymphing, because it's a wonderful system. See, I grew up with old Charlie Brooks out in West Yellowstone, and he was teaching me them fishing out there, which well, <laughs> it was a little bit more crude than your own yeah. thing, but 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 we call it fish, but uh, I'm going to teach that this year in our mountain trout schools because a lot of the people are asking questions about it, but i'm what I'm going to have to teach them is how to gear their tackle down to this pool that's twenty feet long, ten feet wide. So, and they're going to be impressed how they can, how they can adjust that to that. So it's a lot of fun. It really is.
1: Well, let, let's go back to that, the, the trout school. I want to kind of walk us through, because I think this will help give us a little bit of a guide here. So, so once you, you finished the slideshow, the presentation, people are getting on reading the water. What, what's the next step there? What, what are you doing with the class?
0: We wow. hop in our car and go to the stream that we feel is going to give the best fishing there. And we divide up along, we'll say, a mile of the stream. And each, I'll, I'll, there'll be five guides, so to speak. He'll start with a one boy downstream, work with him, and then work up to the next one to the next one. The next. And once he gets through with those five, then he'll rotate around and go it all again. In the meantime, I've got five boys that I just took upstream, and I'm working from person to person to person. Basically... Answering any questions they have as they go along because I mean, they're there to fish, they're there, and oh, they count their fish. You better believe, and they count and compare with each other. There you go. I had two Air Force colonels one time that were very, very competitive, <laughs> <laughs> and each one was counting his fish to beat the bank. <laughs> there you go. So, But the bull, no, they're planning to catch fish and they'll tell me at the end of the day how many they caught and they may embellish the size a little bit, but they're learning how to
1: catch them. That's cool. Yeah. So basically, yeah, this is like a, it's kind of like a mix, of guided trip along with the school, right?
0: that's exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right, Dave. It It's it's a guided trip, but you might say I'm I'm guiding five people. Yeah, you guide five people, and then yeah. I'm working from person to person to person. Yeah, okay. And some of them, you know, some of them really do need a little refinement on the casting, and some of them then, like they have been there for a while, and they want to brush up on a slackline cast or or, or learn to fish upstream dead drift nymphing. It depends on how, where they are in their needs. And if they have a whole lot of needs, I can tell that in a hurry. So I go in on what's going to help them most at their beginner level.
1: Gotcha. How is, uh, you know, when you think of brook trout, obviously that's the wild uh, fish you have there. How is that different from rainbows with what you teach
0: Oh, it's a whole lot of similarity, a lot. Now, now, if you're going to go down in uh, Abrams Creek and down on the uh, southern park line down in North Carolina over toward Abrams Creek and Caves Cove, where you're getting the faster water, sometimes the rainbow will be in faster currents. And I I find that often in uh, in some of the streams out in the rock is the rainbow will be being a little bit faster water where and if you know if you've got browns in there they may be even slower water but but it, but that again they're going to go back to that thing the greatest amount of food for the least amount of effort so they're still playing that game yeah
1: and remind us again I was just thinking of the corner you mentioned the, the, was it the corner of the pool that really that other hot spot the feeding station.
0: They all right. The corner is the last place up in the stream that can get. It's a little lazy Susan, the size of a dinner plate, and the current is flowing upstream, so to speak. And boy, that that that's a gold mine because he's gonna be lying right there in that little tiny spot, and he's been there all day, and he's gonna be there all day tomorrow till somebody catches him and moves him. But uh, he's chosen the spot that he knows will give him the greatest amount of food, the least amount of effort. See, our brookies do, a uh, five-year-old brook trout is, is Methuselah. Most of them don't live more than four years. So they, they have to learn to adapt pretty quickly.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. No, so, and, and just, remember, just so I'm totally clear on this. So you've got kind of like a, in a pool, you, you have just kind of your main current in the middle. Then you might have a big, like a back eddy or some sort of eddy on the side. This dinner plate is going to be right at the very kind of head of that pool at, at the top end.
0: That's exactly right. You're right on it. Gotcha. Yep. And, but like I say, if the hatch is good, like when we have a March Brown or when we've got that vivacarium uh, or, or, or the Dorothea, the sulfur hatch, when woes hatches are good, the best fish in the pool in that he's got the flies and at that time of the year he's probably got the best water level, he's probably going to be in the tail of the pool. Oh, he'll be in the tail. He'll be on the tail and he'll lie right there in the protection of a boulder. Now, if it siphons out of there, kind of running downhill, and there's no protection for him there, he's not going to be there. He'll, he'll go up in the corner or he may move over in the back eddy. But he's got to have something to block the current slightly. Okay. And
1: you mentioned, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting started spring, March, kind of April. You've got some good hatches coming off. Take us to in through April, May, you know, June into the summer. How does that look? How does that change
0: differently? After that, through here in the Shenandoah National Park and also the George Washington National Forest, it all depends on our water level. For instance, last year we did not get good rains after June, and it got tough. I mean, the, you, you spoke them before you could keep them in casting distance. Year before last, we got re- good rains every week, every week, every week, and we had fantastic fishing all season long. It really comes down to the water level. In most seasons, we're very comfortable into July. Now, yep. July and August, September, it we just pray for a couple good rains. Gotcha. Uh, one of the biologists was helping me and one of the park biologists was helping me on something a couple years ago when things were low and tough and After we finished our conversation, I said, "Now Dave, what can I do to help you now?" He said, "Do a rain dance yeah <laughs> <laughs> because if see the problem is some of our streams there'll be stretches within them that do go bone dry, and as they're approaching that almost dry level." The bloody water snakes, not cotton milk moccasin, just a plain old time water snake, they can just go in and just kill them right and left because the, oh, snake, wow. the trout can't get away from them so that's really a bummer huh. because the, the trout there's no way the trout can get away from them so when I see that happening, I get out and don't fish anymore till we get more rain, yeah. Wow In fact, this year was the first year I ever remember My biologist over here in the park actually closed the park to fishing. I suppose that was in August when we just didn't have any rain at all and then we started getting rain again. then he opened the park back up mm. so they're very conscientious. I mean, what we have, especially in the Santa National Park, is a result of these very, very conscientious biologists we have over there. They're, they're good people, and they, and they know what they're doing. Right. They're like, like Demeroy's closing the, closing the park this year. Some of the people complained, but they, they shouldn't have been trying to go fishing anyway. When no. the park's that low, they shouldn't try it. No. Water temperature is a factor, but I have never had a water temperature in these mountain streams over 68 degrees. Now I'm not going to say it's never gotten over 68 I have but I first thing I do when I get a stream I I take the water temperature. But I have never recorded a water temperature over 68. A couple years ago I went over and I fished in one of my favorite streams and Ah uh, the fishing was lousy. I'd caught a few, but they weren't feeding well. They were just kind of dopey and I took a water temperature and lo and behold it was sixty eight. Well I didn't get back over for the next two weeks, but I did get back over into the park two weeks later. We'd had a lot of cool nights. So I was dropped my thermometer in the stream, lo and behold the water temperature was down to sixty two. I was catching two or three fish in every pool. So 68 isn't gonna make them turn belly up, but it's gonna stress them a little bit to where they're not gonna be as gun-ho as they're gonna be at sixty-two. Yeah. And now going back in the beginning, in in April, March, middle of March, early April, the magic number for me personally. Is 40 degrees. Once our stream temperature, stream temperature, now air temperature, stream temperature gets to 40 degrees for four consecutive days, our trout are feeding. Mm. Now it might hit 40 degrees and then run back down to 36, and then you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to dig them out on nymphs. But 40 degrees for four consecutive days, and I take the temperature every time and I record it. Now, what's going on at 40 degrees for four consecutive days? For one thing, the nymphs are on that final growing spurt. Like I say, the Epispluralis is our first fly, and that starts rolling in there in March. But when we get 40 degrees for four consecutive days, that is really sparking that fish in his final growth, and he is right ready to hatch. In some cases, he is hatching. Now, page two of that says that brook trout lying in there at 40 degrees for four consecutive days, his metabolism is saying, you better shape up and start feeding because you're going to get hungry if you don't. So 40 degrees for four days gets the bugs going. It turns the fish on. So that's sort of the magic number. Once I've got that, I feel comfortable. Now, it could drop back. I mean, we could have, you just, the water could get real cold. Suppose we get, and we get some snows that early. I've seen the snows on there where, where the little. Uh, blue quills were kind of drunk on top, they were staggering around on top of the water, they couldn't couldn't get airborne, they'd kind of flop over to the side and walk out on dry land, and, and you'd have to be careful where you were walking that you didn't step on them. So uh, the water temperature is a very important factor, but once it gets that 40 for four days, you sort of got it made then.
1: You got it made. Okay. And, and I want to dig into a little bit, go back to the summer here just in a second. Um, but I want to go back to that snake. You mentioned the snakes. I'm always, uh, you know, interested now these snakes are eating fish. Is this, are snakes out there? Is this kind of a dangerous thing you need to be thinking about or what's the story with snakes?
0: We have now the water snakes are no problem. We have the only poisonous snakes we have are rattlesnakes and copperhead, which are poisonous. Yeah. I have, when I teach my class, and this is part of goes on to it, I've got three rules for myself when I'm in snake country. One, I do not wade, although I'm wearing hippers, um, I wear felt so hippers in the mountain. Uh-huh. I'm not gonna wade walk through grass that I cannot see where I'm putting my feet. Yep. The second thing, if I'm climbing up and some of these streams are very, very steep and you're climbing up boulders and boulders and boulders. I never reach up and put my hand on a boulder to pull myself up until I peep over that boulder and make sure there's not a rattlesnake up there. The third thing I do when there's a down timber, let's say a down timber of a log that fell and it's lying out there on the ground rotten and it's three feet in diameter, I do not go up to that and step across it until I kind of peck on the far side with my waiting staff yep. to make sure there's nobody lying on the far side of my log. So I don't walk where I can't see. I don't put my hands where I can't see. And I kind of peck on the far side of that log. I yeah. just, I haven't seen a poison snake in the mountains now in five years, but I know they're there. So you you just don't want to do anything foolish, and you don't want to go walking around the mountain in the dark. That's that's a no-no. I ran into a husband and wife that were lost, and I run a lot of people that are lost yeah. in the mountains. I ran into this husband and wife that had parked up on the Skyline Drive. They hiked downstream, down the good trail. We have good trails all over the place. They hiked down this good trail to where we just stopped and made small talk. And it was probably about an hour before it was going to get dark. Well, they had walked about an hour to get down to where they met me. And I just, in small talk, said, which way are you headed? And they said, well, we want to hike up the, And they had the map. We want to hike up this trail and go back up to the uh, Skyline Drive and go back over to our car. And I said, you're not going to be able to get all the way around there before it gets dark. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, the map says, and sure enough, the map says, but the map didn't tell them that that was about eight miles. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, it told them, but they didn't know how to interpret it. Yeah. So I, they said, well, what do we, we just don't want to go to the do the same thing we just did. What are we going to do? I said, if I were you, rather than try to walk around that eight miles in the dark, I would just walk right back up the trail. You came down and then, you know, you're safe getting back out of here before it gets dark. <laughs> So when I left them, they were still arguing with each other. <laughs> I never did I never did figure out how they got out of there. There you go. <laughs> but we've to run into a lot of people. I encourage having the maps that are published by the Appalachian Trail Club. Okay. They are accurate, okay. their scale is good. Now, the tricky thing, they have the trails on there, but many of the trails are done for hikers coming out of DC. And these trails go all over the place. The trails are not always named as I have named them in my book. That's why if if you only wanted the book or the map, you'd better have the book. Because I'm That's saying it. go down uh, Limberlost Trail for a mile and a half, and then when you get to Smoky Hollow Trail, going off to the right, take that for a quarter of a mile, and then go down such and such and such. Yeah. So with that, a friend friend of mine took three friends over into the park last year, and I called him the next day. I said, Jack, how'd you do? And he was a little reluctant to answer me. I said, well, how was the vision? He said, well, I forgot to take my map, and it had been two years since I'd been in there. We got lost and walked for three hours and never did find the water. Oh, man, no way. (laughs) That's so, rough. But they I, I'm sure since he was pr- trying to impress some of these friends, it was very embarrassing. Oh, yeah. But I run into a lot of people that are really lost. Yeah. And, you know, then I can aim them this way and aim them that way and get them back up.
1: This episode is also sponsored by Angler's Coffee. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, Angler's Coffee and the team with Joe. They host a full range of coffees, and their goal is delivering excellent coffee to every angler. This is Joe. He is totally fired up about this mission. He's on it. He's got the coffee going. He's connecting with good organizations, so we're proud to have him on here as a sponsor. This stuff is roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. Think about that, 48 hours. Um, you know, and I think when you crack open a bag, you can definitely taste it. There's no question, you know, if you've uh, had some coffee that's been sitting around too long, it's noticeable. So Joe makes an effort to make sure that everything that you are going to drink is basically as fresh as it gets. A number of different uh, organizations they're supporting. uh, Casting for Recovery is one right now, which is amazing. So by supporting anglers, you're supporting Casting for Recovery as well. And you're supporting this podcast all in one shot. So head over there right now. uh, Head over to uh, Angler's Coffee. That's wetflyswing.com slash anglers. And grab your bag of great freshness today. That's Angler's Coffee. A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Angler's Coffee. Check it out. And uh, let's do this. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let's take it back to that, you know, because I want to walk us through the rest of the season uh, thinking about brookshaw. So if you're in, so let's just say we get a good rain, it's August, September, and you get a good rain, and then the water's good. What does that look like? What kind of flies should you have in your box? What should you be ready for?
0: Well, we lose our aquatic insects probably by even the the stone stonefly, which we stretch into July. We're into terrestrials after that. The ants and the beetles and that. Now you're tapering down to six x or seven x, and you're fishing size eighteen ants or sixteen flying beetles, something like that. But now they're they're going to feed. In fact, they're right back on those same feeding stations if uh-huh. they got them. Yeah. So um, they've got it. It's there's just isn't an abundance of food. They've got to take what food there is when it's there. And uh, so we, we catch plenty of fish on terrestrials, but I usually switch over terrestrials by July. And I've got a little flying beetle. I use that's just extremely effective. And of course you can't go wrong on ants. They're yes. always taking ants. but now see that Brookie starts spawning in October. Oh, right! So we're kind of reluctant to fish for them when they're, yep. when they're spawning. And so we kind of, kind of cool that, but, uh, but it, it, you can have good fishing all summer long with the average rainfall that we do get.
1: Yeah, you do get, get, and that's so. So basically, yeah, October, you know, late September, October through February, you're you're pretty much you're you're hitting smallmouth bass.
0: Yeah. Plus, that by that time, the water temperatures are starting to drop down quite a bit. Oh right. See, once oh. it gets down the thirty-five, thirty-six degrees, they're just not going to feed that much. Yeah. So. But from the middle of, well, let me cheat. Let me cheat and say, well, I get going in the middle of March, even though the flies may not be coming off yet. But from the middle of March until all the way into through September, you're pretty safe unless it's unusual low water year. Yep. But you're pretty safe that whole time, and they're going to be feeding the whole time. The water may be getting low. You may have to go to hands and knees. Mm-hmm. You might have to make slackline casts. Mm-hmm. But it's, the real, it's, it's all part of the game, and that's why learning this, you're ready for the next stage. So it, it's a good stepping stone to anybody that really wants to get serious about trout fishing.
1: Gotcha. And let's, let's just take, we got a little segment we call fly shop Friday. And, uh, this is where we answer a few questions, um, from the audience. And you mentioned that, uh, Well, the casting is interesting. You mentioned the puddle cast. Give us a few. Let's start with the slack cast. Let's talk about a few different casts that you use out there that are maybe you know effective. What's the? Well,
0: the the puddle cast, of course, is is that was Vince Marinaro's, and it it gives you a drag flea drift if you once you learn how to. Now, there's another slack line cast that I use sometimes, not as much as a puddle cast, called the lazy S cast. Now, you're making the cast and it's turning over in the air, but before it gets down to the water you wave your rod tip from left to right and that throws a couple just what it said lazy s in there so you're 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 achieving a drag free drift and uh with either the lazy s cast or the puddle cast and i teach those in the schools you know the kids learn them right away there's no no big challenge to it those are easy and, uh, and once they see, well, I did it Harry's way this time and I caught the trout and I didn't use a lazy S cast on that pool. And doggone, I got dragged just as it was getting to the fish and he went back down. So it's, it, it, it sort of explains itself. The basic cast, we try to use rods are between six and a half and seven and a half that'll handle a number three line, but we're right back to that thing, accuracy and delicacy. I mean, you really need to hit what you're shooting at because they, like I say, these guys are out there to feed. So if you can put it to the right place, you're home free, but you get out there with a stiff four weight rod and you're going to have problems. Gotcha. If you take a five weight, you just struck out.
1: <laughs> That's too much. You need that feel. You need that feeling. <laughs>
0: take that five weight to the Yellowstone and you'll do fine. That's right. <laughs> How far are you casting
1: uh, on average here for these fish?
0: Uh, probably. Well, the shorter the better. Yeah. But probably not over twenty. I mean, if you're making a thirty foot cast, you're going to get drag sure as the world. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to see. That's what I've got to work with. My son takes a lot of his friends fishing. And he said, I wish I could get Johnny to stop making such long casts, because Johnny's a good cast. Well, Johnny's out there making 40-foot casts. Well, of course, he isn't (laughs) going to catch anything. Yeah. So, but probably 20 in the 10 to 20-foot range would be where you do most, because, like I say, you're going out there 30, boy, I tell you, it's tough. Yeah. And you're and now you're going to you can make a thirty foot cast if you if you're throwing a slack line cast and just hope for the best. A thing that does help a tremendous amount on that for beginners and everybody is go to a high gradient section of the stream. You know the flat water from here to the front door. My goodness, I spook that guy before I get to him. But see, our mountains get up over four thousand feet. The bottom of the mountain where I just parked my car, and I'm going to walk up in there. I'll go to what I call mid mountain. Now, that's probably going to be 2,000 to 3,000 feet up there. Now, in mid mountain, it sort of tumbles down the mountain from pool to pool to pool to pool. To pool. Now, there, that's giving me a slight edge because they're not as spooky in a high gradient part of the stream as they are in that long, flat stream. So in the middle of the summer, when I see it getting low, I'll go to, you know, those areas. It tells on the map, and, you know, you can tell them by walking up the mountain. But it gets steep, it's steep. Yeah. But I'll go to those mid-mountain areas because the gradient is better and the fish are not as spooky. So that, that's an important way of way to play these mountain streams.
1: Okay. And that's another good tip. And then the size of the length of the rod, you're saying six and a half to
0: seven feet is about right? Six and a half to seven and a half. You get much longer than seven and a half. You're going to be banging into tree limbs. You get much shorter than six and a half. You've got to crowd that guy back on the lip and you just spooked him. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I get boys that come out here. Some of them have five and a half, Foot rods. Oh my goodness gracious! Oh wow! Five they have, have You know, you've got to get a drag free drift. Yeah. So in order to do it, they're going to crowd in and in and in and it. Whoops! There went the trout. So if you get much under six and a half, you, you're you're asking for a problem. Yeah. Are you doing the Euro
1: game for these brook trout and up in the mountains?
0: Yeah, if the boys want to learn it, like I say, we're it's all we have to do is adjust the technique because your nymphing is just wonderful. Yeah, you know, everybody using it in the Madison and Penn's Creek and those kind of streams, but using the the things that they've developed and even some of the flies that they've developed, uh, you know, it, it's going to work fine. I can yeah. stand right beside the boy and. Show him in one cast how to do it, and all of a sudden, zap! There's a trout. Boy, he's proud as a punch. Exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll teach him if they want them. But then you know, you can do some upstream dead drift nymphing, and you know that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But we have sort of gauge the boy, the student in the class, and then do what he wants to do. Many of them, since the dry fly fishing is so good many of them just want to stay with dry so that's that's what we do yeah definitely personally that's i'd definitely rather face drys than anything so I, I pretty much stay with drys personally and see i know these hatches yeah. so i know i know what's coming before i even get there mm. so you're already
1: before you even get the stream you already know what fly you're going to be starting with
0: yep i put them in my box the night before
1: <laughs> yep yeah that's right and you're are you tied do you like tying flies still or is that done by somebody else?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I don't really tie that. I don't have that much time. I I teach fly tying in here during the winter, but I don't really get time to tie my own flies. I've, I've trained a number of boys here that are really now growing into very good fly tires, and I rely strongly on them. So I'm probably not tying my own flies much anymore.
1: So you tied, um, so the dry flies and all that stuff, you're pretty, uh, Pretty good at tying some of
0: those flies. Oh yeah, when I have to. I mean, just simple old well, Royal Wolf that that, that Dan Bailey did out there on the you Royal Wolf's a heck of a fly. Yeah. Now you want to stay down to a fourteen, sixteen, uh-huh. but the Royal Wolf's a fish catching machine. That's a good fly. And the light Cahill from the that came down out of the Catskills, uh, a light Cahill in sixteen, eighteen. It's terrific fly so but there again the the doggone fish cannot be selective a grasshopper comes drifting down that stream and he comes over and he says boy to you and lets it go that grasshopper isn't going to go back up the head of the pool and come down and say let's try two out of three that brook trout knows making it to four years old knows darn well he's got to take anything that comes down the chute right So, but the, the, those old flies that we all knew, the Royal Wolf, the Goofus Bug, and all those, uh-huh. they're, they're good flies. Nice. Now, you want, now we do, we start off with 5X in the spring. Go down, now, we do build our own leaders. I'm very particular about that. But we, uh, we start off with 5X, and then by, oh, June, oh, no, probably by the end of April, I'm down to 6X. And then I'll stay with 6X. All the way down to probably the middle of the summer, and then I'll drop down to 7x. And it's because that tippet, and there we go, Vince Marinero it enables the fly to drift naturally. It's not that you couldn't go out there with 7X and cast across the pool and the thing is going to drag across there like a PT boat. Sure, it's going to do, but what Vince kept on telling us, it's going to enable that fly to drift naturally until the current does take over. So that's what we achieve when we go on down to 7X. The fly drifts better. So a lot of little things like that really, really make up what it's all about. Gotcha. Uh,
1: well, there's, Harry, there's so much here. We're going to get out of here in a little bit, but I just had a couple of more items I want to touch on just quickly. Um, first on flies, you mentioned a bunch of flies. If I was going to be heading out there, getting ready for March, April, um, can you give us like a top five or 10 flies I should have in my box and be ready to go?
0: Well, the Mr. Rapidan Parachute Dry is going to be your top fly for the first two months. Oh, wow. Okay. Mr. Rapidan parachute dry in a fourteen, then we do get a good, uh, good blue quill hatch. I would definitely want some blue quills in a sixteen, mm-hmm. and then we do get down into the Lake K Hills, all um, oh, probably by May. So you'd want some Lake K Hills in about a size sixteen, eighteen, and definitely the sulfur, the F. Marilla dorothea. I would definitely want Murray sulfur in a in a sixteen and eighteen. Okay. And then once you get by that, and well, I almost forgot it, the little Yellowstone fly. I'd oh, want some yeah. some Murray's little Yellowstone flies in about a size sixteen. But once I get by those, then I'm back to my hoppers and my ants. I'm not not hopper, the beetles and the ants.
1: So that's trust So basically, you got five flies that are good for your dries, and then you got the other five are pretty much. If you had to pick ten, the other five are uh, terrestrials.
0: Yeah, after the middle of the summer, you're probably off with beetles and ants.
1: Gotcha. Okay, that's good. And and talk just briefly again about your leaders. I'm curious on the setup. How how does that look?
0: The leaders we use a compound knotted tapered leader, uh, as short as six feet and maybe up to seven and a half feet. Uh, but they're hand tied to formulas. I've worked up over the years, but we use uh, some six foot leaders and we have some that we, uh, we've developed an indicator with some of them. We have nymph leaders that we actually install this Murray indicator in them, but most of our leaders are six to seven and a half feet. If you get them too long, they're not going to be manageable in those small streams.
1: Yeah. And you're building, are you building the different sections of that leader yourself?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll say in a, a. five X, uh, seven and a half foot leader. There. Now I'm taking this off the top of my head. I would guess there'd be six strands in there. You jump down 2,000th of an inch per strand. Why 2,000? If you jump more than that, the knots don't hold. So we just taper down pretty quickly. The major length of a leader is in the top two sections. And then you step down real quickly, boom, 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 boom. And then with, out to a two foot tip head but the major length of the leader is in the top two sections. Top two. Okay. And uh, I'm going back to that fly shop, fry. You mentioned the puddle
1: cast, the lazy s cast, the slack line. Um, talk about just quickly the slack line cast. And then if there's a couple of other casts there that we can talk about.
0: Well, the one that I do that people confuse some with a bow and arrow cast oh, yeah. is what I call a flip cast. Now a bow and arrow, you bring it back and let it go like a bullet and, heavens knows where it's gonna land. It go it gets out there, but you really don't have very good accuracy. I do what I call a flip cast and especially with the classes if I've got beginners, I hold the fly in my I take well, will say I pull the leader and eight feet of line off the reel. Mm-hmm. I hold the fly in my left hand, I'm a right hander. I hold the fly in my left hand I've got, I'm using Murray's Mountain Trout Rod, which is delicate and accurate, and then I kind of sneak in almost hands and knees to where I'm ready to make the cast. Then I make the forward punch with the rod. As the fly is turning over in the air, I release it out of my left hand, and it just drops right out on target. I mean, you can get down to dropping those in a dinner plate cast after cast. And the beginners just love it because, you know, they don't have to worry about a double haul and all that kind of stuff. But they hold the fly in the left hand. The rod's in the right hand, they're bending over, they're sneaking it, and they actually start making the cast, still holding the fly, hold got the fly tight, and but they start turning the rod over and as that loop opens up I open my fingers, zap right on target. Huh. And it's an easy cast to do. I can take people that have never even picked up a fly rod, and they'll be doing that perfectly in, in less than five minutes. Five minutes and okay. it gets you terrific accuracy. Gotcha. So that I call it a flip cast for the lack of a better name. And then the pop strike is setting the hook and releasing the trout instantly. And the reason I do this is sometimes I'll come into a pool and I'll see three feet, three different trout in there rising. And right. I'm greedy. I'd like to get a hold of all three of them. So I'll use this pop strike. So I see, I go to the closest one first. I drop my Mr. Rapidan up over him. It's dripping back, and he comes up. Now I know I fooled him. He sucks it in, I set the hook. And I've got him, so I won. He didn't. <laughs> I release the pressure on it right away. He drops back, swims away. He doesn't even know I've been <laughs> there. And then, boom, boom, boom! I got those other two fish that they didn't even know we were over there. Wow! But that's one I call the pop strike, and gotcha. uh, it, it really where I use that almost every cast. No kidding. So you don't need to. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you don't feel like you need a, a photo. I don't. I don't want to handle him. I don't want him to scare the other pool. I don't want him to d- demolish a parachute hackle. I just. I want to. Once I set that hook, I know I've won. And so I just release the pressure, and away he goes. He's just happy as he can be. That's it. And then I go over to the next one. And go over to the next one. But that's the one I call the oh. the flips the pop strike. Pop
1: strike. Okay. We'll we'll put that one in
0: there as well. Try
1: to try to find that.
0: Yeah. That pop strike that, that, and really I've got some customers that buy a lot of parachute, Mr. Rapid and dry flies and they'll, they'll hook the fish, they'll land the fish and they'll go in to take the fish off. Well, to get the folk out of his jaw, they'll grab a hole of the parachute and all of a sudden they just destroyed the fly. So, you know, you just don't do that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: Who's been, you know, I, I think you mentioned a few really big names. Uh, who, who do you think has been uh, the, one of the most influential people in, in, over the years, over 50 years to you in, in fly fishing?
0: Oh, probably Charlie Waterman. He's, you know, Charlie's probably the best writer we've ever had in the outdoor business. But boys like Dave Whitlock and, yeah. and you know, the whole crowd, they've all been good friends of mine. Yeah. Dave did my logo. and Oh, wow. And, you know, he's been out here fishing with me, and, and uh, oh, my goodness, all, all the whole uh, Ed Shank was a good friend. And oh, Ed Shank. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Ed Shank. There's a few flies. Ed, Ed's a heck of a fisherman. You know, he's passed away. And then I've had... Uh, uh, Lefty Cray did the introduction on one of my books, and I fished uh-huh. with him, and he did some of the photography for me. And, but I'd say Charlie Waterman has probably been my greatest influence because of the pleasure he derives from it. Uh, he comes up here and fishes with me, and I go to Florida and fish with him, and then we fish together in Montana. And just the pure joy that Waterman gets out of it is, is what, what I just admire so much.
1: And, uh, Vince Marinier is another name that comes up a lot. You hear about a lot. Who, who was, who was Vince?
0: He, he and Charlie Fox are the ones who developed the latorque Oh yeah. He lives up at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. All they, those boys were sharp. I mean, Vince only wrote two books and, <laughs> huh. and, and we still haven't mastered those two books yet.
1: Really? So he, he was ahead yeah. of, he was ahead of a lot of people on, on a lot of things.
0: He was worth it still. We have a master. Even the second book that he wrote long after the first one, uh, The Ring of the Rise, uh, you know, there's stuff in there about the way the fish feed on the surface that I don't think one fisherman out of a hundred really understands what he's talking about. Oh, wow. What was the name of that book? Ring of the Rise. and His first one was mo- The Modern Dry Fly Code.
1: Motor dry fly Okay, great. Oh, well, Vince was great. a
0: character. I mean, he was uh, very bullheaded and very opinionated. <laughs> but you know, like my attorney, he tends out to be right most of the time. But, but Vince and I were real close, and Charlie Fox lived right there on the Latorre, and oh, he was—they they just loved that water so much. And not only were they good fishermen, but you know, they were transplanting mayflies. I mean, moving may, moving mayflies from one stream to another, and oh, I wow. mean, doing stuff. We're not even doing today yeah and i'm talking about 50 years ago no kidding but uh you know they they were first class So, uh, well, let me wrap it up here with the, um, you mentioned
1: Charlie Vince and a few other people. Let's talk about your books. You've, you've got 17 books you've published. If, if we wanted to look at all those books, is there a place, I'm not sure if you have, if they're all in, you know, out there still.
0: Well, the one that probably is going to help most people learn fly fish, trout fishing, would be the book Trout Fishing in the San National Park. Yeah. The one that I wrote that covers the whole state of Virginia is Virginia's Blue Ribbon Streams. Okay. But that little book I did on the park many years ago—I mean, it's the whole. There's one chapter in there, and I don't even remember the number of it. But it's only eight pages long. If they can master those eight pages in that trout fishing the Shenandoah National Park, they're on their way to being a completed fisherman.
1: There you go. Eight pages. That's that's good. So we'll get that book and then we'll get those eight pages and we'll we'll be uh, we'll be on our way, right?
0: That <laughs> sounds good. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, so any uh, I guess just give us a heads up in the next uh, I mean it sounds like the trout schools from now it, uh, into the summer is that what kind of keeps you busy?
0: Yeah, we start our uh, trout schools on the we call them on the stream schools where we actually take the people to the stream. We start those in March, April and May and then after that we do a whole lot of private guided trips oh yeah but our structured oh, yeah. schools are that we're doing in the Chandra National Park are March, April and May and they will once they take those schools, there they're, they're going to learn more than they had any idea it was out there and I provide the rod and reel and all for them to use in the classes. I do require they have their own wading gear, yeah. but I bring bring plenty of real, real fine trout rods for them to use.
1: Okay. All right, perfect, Harry. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here and uh, respect your time today. And I think what we'll do is try to get you back on for another like smallmouth because I know that's another huge
0: um... out of your books. We'll you've do got... anything you need. Yeah, that we we start in that that probably serious trout bass fishing would be in the middle of may
1: oh you do so you get in yeah middle may
0: yeah middle of may and that that continues to through september
1: oh through september okay so yeah maybe we can get you in sometime uh get people prepared for that uh if we've had some decent smallmouth episodes but your name has definitely come up
0: on those episodes sure i'll be glad to help you any way we can on that okay harry
1: all right thanks again for all your time today and i will check back with you uh and uh yeah we'll, we'll let you know when this one's ready to go Okay. Thank you a whole lot for calling. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all links, to everything else we covered today, head over to com slash 290. 290 will get you the links and all the good stuff over there. One link that's over there, uh, I think that's over there. It might not be, but uh, Fly Shop. If you want to check out uh, our local Fly Shop we're supporting today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash Fly Shop, and that'll redirect you over to see... Who we got there who we're supporting today thanks in advance for checking that out also want to give you a heads up uh later this week uh we have a, another big huge guest on chuck ferimsky is here to share the story of how he created the largest fly fishing show in the world the fly fishing show that's enough said right so they're they're out they're back they're going strong so Chuck's got a pretty cool story of how it started small and how he's got it to where it is. And how obviously now Ben's taken over. So click that subscribe button if you haven't already and you'll get updated when that next episode goes live. That's all I have for you today. That is a wrap. Thank you for supporting the show. Listen to the very end and doing and being amazing. Uh, let me know if you're interested in checking out some of these trips we have going. Um, the giveaway coming up here, not only for some of the products, but we got some big trip giveaways. It's going to be a good year. Let me know. Uh, check in with me, Dave, at wetflyswing.com. Thank you, and let me know if we can connect online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.